Welcome back, Intimates. Thanks for your support on Patreon, making this 2021 season possible. This podcast is about all things intimate, relationships, love, connection, community, consensual non-monogamy, kink, orgies, lovers, and of course, good old-fashioned sex. I talk with old friends and even meet some new ones. I interview people from all walks of life, from recovered addicts to counselors, sex partners to perfect strangers. I'd like to thank my hosts, the Musqueam First Nation, as this podcast is recorded on their unceded ancestral territory, where I was born, where I work, and where I currently live and play. So settle in for an intimate conversation. Today, I reconnect with my friend, William. He's a distant acquaintance with whom I never really forged a connection of substance, but now all that seems to be changing. He's a heterosexual cis man who recently had a near-death experience, and that's forced him to confront a history of distracting himself from what was important. Whether it was gaming or alcohol then, it's become therapy now. So it's great to reconnect and discuss therapy, medication, forgiveness, and compassion here on Intimate Interactions. Leading up to the accident, my life was all going a certain way and I had a narrative and I understood my life to mean a certain, you know, certain set values and certain narratives about what I was doing. And then after the accident, I've had to put everything back together, really. Like my understanding of my whole life has been kind of reframed through trying to piece together like... (laughs) Everything. It's weird to think, as a as a forty year old who almost killed himself in a bike accident, I'm wondering about things from when I was like six that led me to drink. You know? Yeah, yeah, that makes perfect sense to me. So, yeah, there's like, there's very much the short term. There's the immediate stressors since the accident. Like I have been worried about, I mean, not dying for one thing, mobility mm-hmm. injuries mm-hmm. notwithstanding, and then. Looking at longer term, like longer term, I really did take it for granted that I would get a second chance at life and that I didn't want it to look like the first half, basically. Wow. Because it was. Those are powerful it words. Was a per- oh, thank you. It's It was a perfect confluence of like. Oh, I, I should just tell you some backstory to start, but. Flash, uh, flash the title two weeks earlier. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, well, my uh, my wife and I separated uh, right, like, it's it's unbelievable, the coincidence, but my wife moved out the day that I was dispatched from hospital because she'd already signed a lease. I think it was, like, the day I got in the accident or, like, the day before, the day of. She, like, it was the day of. She had to nip out of the hospital and sign on with the landlord and then wow. come back to the hospital. She moved out the day that I was discharged just by coincidence. Huh. And um, so, yeah, waking up in hospital and like that was one of the things that we had to talk about was whether or not, you know, I mean, she's looking to me like this is something we'd talked about. This is something that we knew was coming anyway and having to agree that, you know, I remember stopping her in hospital and saying like, you know, I understand that this is something we already talked about. Don't even don't even worry about the optics. Don't worry about how it looks. Just this mm-hmm. is something we already agreed to do, you know? Yeah. So, 
So it sounds like everything in your life got completely flipped upside down. Yeah. Yeah. I, um, I'm trying to make sense of it all now when there's kind of three, there's three main time frames that I'm looking at. There's like the childhood leading up to it, the maladaptive behavior that I'd picked up mm-hmm. and now the sort of like trying to put it all together and not, not suffer more than I have to for what I've been through. So, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, <laughs> I'm trying to make a very like broad holistic understanding to how like, you know, it was an accident that was my fault. That was an extension of my drinking, which was an extension of me not adapting well right. to, uh, to the upbringing that I had. Right. Which is an extension of the coping styles you picked up or didn't pick up in childhood. And then the way that informs how you chose to cope in every moment forward leading up to the accident. Yeah. Yeah. So when I woke up in the hospital, I was pretty dazed. I was pretty out of it. They had me on, um, painkillers, like pretty heavy stuff for the first day. And I was hallucinating for the first moment or two when I actually, the first moment that I remember in the hospital, I transitioned somewhere from thinking that I was in a game of Mario Kart to seeing familiar faces. Wow. And, uh, and I remember some of the first things that I thought about was like, uh, it was during the heat wave. So I thought about climate change. Mm-hmm. And I thought about just how much I'd been sleepwalking through my life, just playing video games, just round the clock. Basically, all I was doing was just working in video gaming my entire life away. So I, right. I resolved then and there. I was like, I'm never going to play video games again. I'm done with that. I'm just going to put it out of my life. And so, oh, yeah, yeah, there's just, Sorry, I'm just. Uh, no, take your time. This it's, stuff's it's hard. It's a lot. Yeah, it is. <laughs> yeah, because there's there's like thousands there's like thousands of little stories and little anecdotes I've picked up along the way, and I want to give you the, I want to give you the meat, the gist of what I've come to realize. But I could just ramble on for a couple hours with no point. <laughs> I, well, and also like, who couldn't? Like, if you're trying to put together the entirety of your life and find purpose and meaning and the things that really matter to us and make us feel like fulfilled in our hearts when we're falling asleep at night. I think most people would struggle to do that and would find themselves rambling and maybe be a little embarrassed. And I think all that's really normal and okay. Yeah, I hope so. Um, So the sort of fast and dirty of it is that uh, my wife and I were going to separate by coincidence you know, we'd already started putting that in motion that she was going to move away. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I got invited to a coworker's birthday party. We'd all gotten vaccinated. I actually got my second dose of the vaccine that day. Okay. And then we went to the house party. I was having a great time. Like I knew, I knew my wife and I were separating. I felt like it was, you know, a rough patch. I was putting it out of my mind a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, but I didn't, it's not like we had some kind of heavy sit-down conversation about it. It was just, you know, this was the next step. It was presented to me as a very much what's going to happen kind of thing. And I was at my friend's birthday party, drank too much. Um, and, like, I just, I come to realize after the fact, like, sorry, I'm, uh, I'm getting way too lost in the weeds here. 
That's okay. The basics are that I uh, went to my friend's birthday party, drank too much. I ended up doing cocaine that night, and I don't remember that. Which oh, wow. Is, like that that's a bizarre realization to have because I got tested when I was in the hospital. They actually put me to bed. They put me to bed in the guest room because they were like, you know, he's had too much. He's partied out. They put me to bed. Okay. And I've confirmed with them. They said, you know, we just got up in the morning at six or whatever time it was. And they said, Oh, well we, you know, we saw you'd left, but more likely what had happened is I'd left hours earlier. Right. And I got on my bike and, hammered my way home and on a dedicated cycling off ramp from a bridge i actually i'm not sure how but i fell off my bicycle i hit my face on either either a lamp post or the pavement um i wrecked my face up and knocked in two front teeth broke my nose separated my shoulder um and i i fell in such a way that i impacted my trachea jesus it's not it's not really – I'm not really clear exactly how it happened because there was no motor vehicle incident. There was no motor vehicle involved, and right. uh, there were no witnesses that came forward. So somebody right. – a uh, service worker who was driving home with his friends from the bar, as they were at an intersection, he looked out to the right and saw me lying face down on the ground near my bicycle. So he came over, checked on me, administered first aid as best he could, and um, paramedics came pretty quickly and then carted me up to the hospital. Uh, when I was in the hospital, I was, uh, according to the guy, because I, I got his number and I texted him about this and I talked to him and he said that I was like semi-responsive, but not really they got me into the hospital. They were preparing me. This is what I gathered from speaking to the surgeon. They were preparing me to go in for imaging to make sure that I didn't have a brain bleed. And that's when my breathing arrested. Jeez. And that's because my handlebar, as far as I can tell, hit my trachea and collapsed it. So my breathing arrested when they were preparing me to go into the CT machine. So they had to do an emergency tracheal bypass surgery or mm. colloquially uh, tracheostomy. So they slashed open my throat to open it up. They inserted a piece of plastic. They ventilated through there. Um, and then, yeah, they sent me in for imaging. Once they stabilized me, they got me in for imaging. And then it was surgeries to rebuild my nose, um, surgery to rebuild my trachea to restabilize my airway, followed by intubation, IVs, feeding tubes, the whole gamut. So, yeah, that's the that's the accident. That is the quick and dirty of the accident. Got it. Mm -hmm. Sounds so when I, sounds pretty intense. <laughs> yeah, weirdly enough, um, uh, everything I know about the accident I know secondhand because I have no memory whatsoever of it. Right. So I'm actually paradoxically lucky um, because I was drunk. I don't remember the accident. And that actually plays a big role in whether or not you're likely to develop PTSD is that the less huh. likely 
Yeah, the less you remember of the accident, the less you can develop a negative association with the memory of the accident. Yeah, no, that's my understanding. That makes perfect sense. I just never would have thought of that. <laughs> but it makes perfect right? sense. Yeah. I actually, in my research afterwards, that's something that I saw in my reading was that, yeah, it's actually that, that is, uh, that is a less likely scenario for people to develop PTSD is that they don't remember it properly. I remember reading a handout in the hospital. It was a PTSD information sheet. And that's what they, that was one of the things they highlighted was that PTSD is about malformation into a memory where it's not reflective, but it's like reconstructive. So it can have that effect on your limbic system, make you right, scared. Right. And um, it was weird because then I like read that and I took it to heart, but I was in the hospital. I was still drugged out and confused. Mm -hmm. And I started imagining myself falling off a bicycle at really high speeds. And so I took very seriously that it was up to me to make sure that I um, – confronted and understood the accident rather than imagining it because I would fall asleep. I would fall asleep and dream of myself falling off a bicycle and maiming myself and falling and falling and falling. And I thought, you know, I still could develop PTSD if I work at it. <laughs> so, yeah, because <laughs> you, sure. can, you can create it. You can create a narrative. Anyone who's fallen off a bike, you know, sure. you can recreate that. So I, I made sure to go to the scene of the accident. I spoke to the guy who found me. I found out exactly where the fall was. I tried to understand everything I could about it um, just to help make sure that I understood the accident as well as possible rather than trying to shut down those intrusive thoughts of mm -hmm. the collision and the scraping and the falling and the trauma and all that. Right. The violence of it. Right. Yeah. So I... Oh. Doing okay? Yeah, yeah, I'm just just so much to so much to say. It's almost it's almost like it's really it's really weird how such a such a major accident is really not the part I'm dwelling on now. Like the part that I'm dwelling on is waking up in the hospital and realizing that I'd spent my time the way that I had, like playing video games and avoiding my problems and running away from them all the time. Right. I mean, as a person who's an avid gamer, half of me is like, who hasn't? But there is a large, yeah. there is a large percentage of people who haven't. So I'm like, credit to them. Good, to, good for you, folks who haven't. Yeah, yeah. So, um, is there anything about that you want to know more about? anything so far or I'm actually just kind of enthralled. Like you're, you're really <laughs> good at sort of explaining a very hard thing to put into words. So I'm, yeah. I'm actually quite interested just in general to, to hear you speak more on just how on one, what you've managed to piece together of what sounds like, a truly stupefying experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, so correct me if I'm wrong. So this is how I understand it. So you mentioned that yeah. you didn't, you know, you, you weren't as resourced 
as a youngin in terms of good coping strategies this led to you not really developing any or really seeking to pursue any because you were mostly comfortable with you know alcohol and gaming and sort of the distractions that you had at your disposal is that is that right yeah i think that's fair to say and i think what ended up being what ended up being a very uh, paradoxical part of the problem was that i was a really in high school i learned to become a very like intellectual and precocious kid <laughs> sure and that that led me to rationalize a lot of things away so i would build a really grandiose narrative mm -hmm. of my you know difficult slash tragic upbringing i'd build a huge narrative around it mm -hmm. and i didn't I didn't realize the enormous blind blind spots. Sorry, I didn't realize the enormous blind spots that I'd carried over from that time. So I would just grow into this more academic, more academic, philosophical, like psychologically well-read, and all this. But I didn't I didn't appreciate just how like deaf, dumb, and blind I was to like a broader understanding of human experience, like my own human experience so say more about that in in more recent time like in the past few years i've taken more seriously that i have to get help with psychological wellness dealing with my depression dealing with anxiety too but mostly depression definitely mm -hmm. and i remember in a counseling session my counselor was explaining to me when you feel this way, have you considered it's because of that? You know, when she would kind of look at me pointedly. <laughs> I know that look. And yeah, and I looked up at her and I remember saying, I was like, I feel like I should just have a crayon and a workbook. And like, I feel like you should be taking me out for McDonald's after this because I feel like a three-year-old. Like the amount, the, 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 the amount of things that I didn't know from very basic emotional skills. I felt like I should just be in the emotional equivalent of the coloring book stage as far as where my emotional development stopped in a lot of ways. N and, uh, you know, there I am, like, yeah, like a 36, 37-year-old man sitting in a counselor's office or a therapist's office and just, like, having to just having to understand the most basic levels of emotions, things that I'd been like stuffing down and running away from and silencing under a lot of like sophistry, a lot sure. of like elaborate, yeah, a lot of hyper intellectualizing and that's rather than feeling. 100%. And that's the danger of a lot of, I think, masculine socialization and you know, as you become intellectually developed, there is that that intense messaging from society that you're almost you you don't get access to those things. Like those things aren't for you. You're not really supposed to play with the with the dolls. You're not supposed to develop that sense of of social intelligence and emotional intelligence. You just need to make everyone happy around you and provide for people. And you know, you get all this totally different messaging. Yeah, absolutely. And then, I I know in my case at least um, when I learned about intergenerational trauma that really like blew my mind as far as helping to explain and it still plays an important role it helped to explain a lot to me when i was a lot younger about you know my father was raised by a war veteran who lived in the prairies in the dust bowl years who just had to make do with 
you know, virtually nothing. His parents died in the influenza epidemic. Wow. Back in 1918. He was raised by his two or three, three adult brothers, but they were like, you know, 18 through 14 and they raised him. They died when he was 12. Oh my goodness. And as soon as, because of the war. And as soon as we're, yeah, well, no, they, so my great grandparents died in the influenza epidemic. Right, which would have been, along with, sorry, two of my great uncles. That was 1918. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So then, my grandfather was basically raised by his 18-year-old brother on a farm in the Dust Bowl years in the dirty 30s, <laughs> or rather, in the Depression, right? Yes. So, and then my grandfather, he turned, I think it was 18, like literally, outbreak of war. He was 18 or 19 thereabouts, and he like ran off, joined the war. He was, he was a volunteer. He was in the military for, he literally fought from 39 to like 46. He was in the military. Jeez. That's, that's so a long he, time to be at war. And that it's is. incredible. He survived yeah. all those years. Exactly. And then you think about, I don't know about you, but where I was when I was 18 or 19 <laughs> and you're just, you're yeah. raised by the institution of fighting the you know the greatest human conflict that ever existed sure so well and that took him from 18 to like 24 yeah maybe even 25 yeah, and by exactly and then by the time he was you know by 1948 my dad was born so within a couple <laughs> of years they had some kids yeah i'm seeing the dominoes yeah so it's like you use the model of in in my opinion, or at least in the narrative I'm making, use the model of intergenerational trauma and think about a father who was raised by a crazed war veteran who didn't have parents of his own for a lot of his adult life. Mm -hmm. his, his parents were the military, so, you know. I, uh, I've, been, I've been thinking a lot about that in terms of, like, coming to terms with frustrations about my own upbringing and i have a much more compassionate and uh, a much more compassionate and forgiving understanding to difficulties that i grew up with because i can look at my father and i can say like you know i may have had it bad but you definitely had it worse like i appreciate that you did your best like my dad my dad grew up with the gold standard of hitting children is abuse so as long as you don't hit your children, because that's what happened to him, he would get beaten so much. Right. So for my dad, he thought, if I don't abuse my children physically, I don't abuse my children. Right. And that was it. And it's funny because, you know, you look at it and it's like, it was just a question of severity in terms of the type of abuse. That's That's a bit of a vague statement, but it's like, you know, I, I, instead I of a 10, it, yeah, instead of a 10, he was a five and he's like, there you go. That's not abuse. Like, <laughs> right, right. Yeah. I, I think about that and like, that's really helped me realize and appreciate where my own maladaptive behaviors come from. It allows me to show more forgiveness and compassion to myself as well. Like the same the same kindness that I extend to my father saying like, look, your, your dad did his best. I understand that you're hurt and you're in pain and you don't know any better. 
and I'm literally just making the connection now that I'm allowed to say the same damn thing to myself, which is like my, my dad did his best. He was in a lot of pain and sometimes he just didn't know better. So, Mm -hmm. so how, I mean, it sounds like you've done a tremendous amount of work since we last spoke because I don't think we've spoken for literally years. I think it's literally been years. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) It's, it's, it's Um, good to speak to you now though, and to like hear your voice. And I'm, I'm super curious. Like when did you start coming to some of these conclusions and and doing this work with, with counselors or therapists? When I was um, in my sort of mid to late thirties, I finally got to the point where it was starting to impact my work. And this Mm. is probably an unfortunate socialization where once something impairs once something impairs with my work suddenly it's serious you know <laughs> yeah sure yeah i appreciate quality that. of life yeah quality of life and relationships be damned but if you can't earn bread so yeah i i hit a point where um my coping with anxiety and depression was getting bad enough around the age of 36 that i started taking more seriously that I went the route of talking to a doctor, getting on medication, seeing a counselor and starting to get help. And, um, yeah, it's, it's there. A lot of this is like, I'm very fortunate for the friends that I had growing up. Mm -hmm. Uh, a lot of the people that I met in high school were people that I could be open and more vulnerable with and talk a lot about like, you know, what are the causations that make us the people that we are? I've always had very like intellectually curious friends as well. And I've always been very grateful for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you mentioned this idea of, well, actually before I start talking about rock bottoms, um, I'm, Sure. You mentioned like you're only in your late thirties now and you started doing this work in your like mid to late thirties. Is that, is that right? So you've yeah. only been doing this for like less than five years. Uh, I just turned 41 okay. a couple of days ago. Congratulations. Uh, I guess I should probably leave that's identifying information, but yeah, yeah I turned 41 this year. Uh, I turned 41 this year. And... Oh, no one knows when we record the session, so they don't actually know the day. No, of course. Uh, do you want me to edit it out, or are you comfortable leaving that in? Uh, it should be fine. It okay. should be fine. Do you mind? Do you mind sort of setting me up again there? I got lost. Yeah, no problem at all. <laughs> um, so yeah, so you've done this in like a really short period of time, comparatively. I mean, it's it's so relative, right? Like some people do this work and it takes them, you know, not very long at all, and other people do the work and it takes them, you know, the work in quotations, the phrase everyone loves, um, and you know, it takes them ten years or twenty years and there's just sort of like the right amount of time for you. It's not really something you can be very comparative about, but I just sort of wanted to say, um, you know, like I, I applaud you for doing so much work in such a, what I perceive to be a short period of time. Thank you. I, I do appreciate that. I, um, I've, I've come to appreciate, well, I should, I should, I should say that I thought I was done for a while. I had my (laughs) first, I had my first big breakthroughs when I was on SSRIs. I was taking escitalopram. I was really happy with that. Mm-hmm. If anyone's curious, I was—I found that to be a very, uh, given the side effects that are available, 
but anyway. Yeah, I'm on escitalopram as well, and I, I do have some side effects, but they are minimal, and I, it, for me, it's absolutely worth it as well. Yeah, compared to something like citalopram, for sure. Sure. So how did you like it, Intimates? Discuss your ideas with the community at facebook.com forward slash Intimate Victor, or tweet me at Intimate Victor, or follow my Instagram, you guessed it, at Intimate Victor. If you can spare the cost of coffee to help the show keep going, head to patreon.com slash Victor Salmon. We hugely appreciate your help to continue making intimate conversations for you and yours. If not, you can always help other intimacy nerds find the podcast by leaving us a review anywhere online, especially iTunes. Or you can just tell a friend. The opening music is on hold for you, made of algorithmically generated notes and chords, and played by an AI-rendered saxophonist. The closing music is Gymnopédie, number one, by Eric Satie. Both are provided royalty-free, courtesy of Kevin McLeod at Incompetech.com. Thanks so much for your time, and may your most important relationships be filled with the intimate, rich interactions you crave. Be well. <laughs>